Welcome, listeners, to time for an awakening on Black Talk Radio Network, new media for the new millennia. This is a history and current events program from a cultural perspective. We find this program necessary because Hosea 4, 6 states, my people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge, but we as a people We'll turn this around. Proverbs 4, 7 states, wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. Though thy get it, get an understanding. Again, welcome to the program this evening with your host, Brother Elliot and Brother Richard. The number to reach us to join the conversation this evening is 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. We're streaming live at several locations. You can go to timeforanawakening.com which is the homepage and catch the live stream at that location. You can go to www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening. Again, that's www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening. And the live stream is playing there also. You can go to a bb2me.com. That's A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I.com forward slash time for an awakening. They stream from Ghana and catch the live stream there. Or you can download the TuneIn Radio app to any of your devices. TuneIn is a free app. In that TuneIn search engine, just type in Time for an Awakening. There you'll see the icon, and you can stream your program live, even into your car if you had a Bluetooth capabilities or the auxiliary connection. Again, that's Time for an Awakening radio program with a live stream on the TuneIn app. Drop us an email at timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Again, that's timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Time for an awakening also has a fan page on Facebook in that Facebook search engine. Just type in time for an awakening radio program. There you always see interesting content being posted daily by myself or brother Richard. And do me a favor before you leave that page, just hit that like button. That's time for an awakening radio program with the fan page on Facebook and time for an awakening media is also there. Always full of the latest podcasts of the various programs on time for an awakening media, interesting articles that you can read download at later times and share with your friends also check out that time for an awakening marketplace in our partnership with the bb to me always interesting things in the marketplace all the time various african language classes classes on education economics social systems health and much much more being taught by professors on both the continent and in the diaspora so again make that one of your favorites put that in your address bar that's time for an awakening.com time for an awakening.com will take you straight to time for an awakening Media, it's seven oh seven. You're in this uh, Sunday edition, February the twelfth edition of Time for an Awakening. Our guest this evening in conversation, author, director of African Stud- Africana Studies, an associate professor of history and public affairs at uh, Utica University in New York, Dr. Clemmy L. Harris is with us in discussion. Black political power formations of the twenty. 20th century Philadelphia and beyond is the topic tonight. 
And you can always join the conversation by dialing 215-490-9832 with a question or comment. That's 215-490-9832. We'll be right back to get the program started after a brief word from our sponsors. Mr. Moderator, our distinguished guests, brothers and sisters, our friends and and our enemies. Everybody is here. You are listening to Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts or live programming, hit them up at timeforanawakening.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American owned and operated insurance agency in business for over 20 years, located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services, representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies, offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 215- 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Dooley Brothers, specializing in shingle, rubber roofs, gutters, downspouts, and vinyl sidings. Call for your free estimate today, 215-224-3882. That's 215-224-3882. Dooley Brothers Roofing, the roofing experts you can trust. That number again, 215-224-3882. 215-224-3882. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter, serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. Overworked? Suffering with an underperforming company, headache customer, staff, or vendors? Or are you a startup who wants to get it right the first time and avoid the costly mistakes? We turned a $24,000 a year odd job handyman service into a seven-figure high-end custom home builder and commercial contractor licensed and operating in three states. This is just one transformation created for entrepreneurs like you in various industries around the country. Not what you're used to from accounting and business consulting? Well, welcome to New Business Solutions. If you're ready to go beyond advising, coaching, and training and get implemented results, call 301-244-9072. Let New Business Solutions apply the best comprehensive administrative accounting, operations, human resources, management, sales, and marketing to help you actualize your vision for yourself and your company. From anywhere nationally, call 301-244-9072. Spelled new as in numerous on your device right now. Book your free consultation at newbusinesssolutions.com. History is a clock that people use to tell their political and cultural time of day. It is also a compass that people use to find themselves on the map of human geography. History tells of people where they have been and what they have been, 
where they are and what they are. Most important, history tells a people where they still must go, what they still must be. The relationship of history to the people is the same as the relationship of a mother to her child. From antiquity to the present, our people need to develop a new paradigm. It's time for an awakening with your host, Brother Elliot. Sundays, 7 p.m., Fridays at 8 p.m. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit us up at Time for an Awakening at gmail.com. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. It's 7.13 here on this Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening. Before we get started with our program this evening, I want to welcome in my co-host, Philadelphia activist and tour guide at the African American Museum here in Philadelphia at 7th and Art Street. Brother Richard is with us. Brother Richard. Yes, sir, Brother Elliot. How are you, sir? Oh, man, I, I am very much excited. I know um, everybody thinks that the major thing going on right now in Philly is the uh, Super Bowl. But I, you know, Elliot, I really believe when we're talking about um, pro- being a producer and being about power compared to being a consumer and just being a spectator, um, the discussion we're going to be in tonight um, with um, Professor um, Dr. Harris is really like critical to the game that really affects all our lives compared to the game that makes just a few of us, um, you know, have a benefit and the other, the rest of us maybe have some emotional uh, connection to it. So I'm looking forward to the discussion with Dr. Harris. You know, Richard, we <clears throat> talk about these things all the time. They're, they're part of the subject matter of, of time for an awakening uh, it's basically Black History 24/7 here on this uh, uh, format, uh, but um, some of the things we're going to talk about this evening, and especially dealing with uh, Philadelphia uh, p- political formations, Pennsylvania political formations, or even uh, some what some of our people have been doing nationwide, it, it relates to the all to the same struggle. Mm. Um, I guess this evening. Director of Africana Studies, Associate Professor of History and Public Affairs at Unica University in New York, Dr. Clemmy L. Harris is with us in conversation. Dr. Harris, how are you? I'm well, I'm well. Good evening, uh, gentlemen, um, Brother Elliot and uh, Brother Richard. It's wonderful to be with you both this evening and your listeners. Glad to have you with us and, uh, to talk about this uh, conversation. Richard uh, told me that, that he attended a uh, a uh, lecture that you were involved in. And um, I, I listen, let's, before I pass it over to Brother Richard to kind of get things started, I, I, I'll just say this. Uh, Dr. Harris, from earliest times here in Philadelphia, uh, from the early 19th century Richard Allen and others have tried to had tried to make uh, power formations for our people political formations if you want to term it that way uh, from the black political convention that was here in 1830 at Mother Bethel to when voting rights uh, for black Pennsylvanians was taken away and I think it was the late 1830s uh, our people have been struggling to form power formations in this particular area, Philadelphia in particular. Uh, 
it kind of morphed into different things. And even now, we're still dealing with the same issues, basically. But I do want to go back and and let Brother Richard kind of set the tone for our conversation this evening, because I think it'll be interesting uh, where this conversation goes and, and basically, uh, you know, how you see this, uh, how how you see this playing out for our people and, and, and what exactly are we doing? Richard? Yeah, you know, well, I want to say, hey, Dr. Harris, I'm one of them people. I've been trying to track the history of black Philadelphia um, political formation going back mm-hmm. to this, really the 18th century. But uh, when, um, when I became aware of your, well, I became aware of the book, um, If There Is No Struggle, There Is No Progress, Black Politics in the 20th Century in Philadelphia, and then became specifically aware of your um, two articles in this, in this um, you know, the compendium of, of works, um, Old Philadelphia, The Great Migration and the Irony of um, Progressive Politics and the Black, in the 1960 and Expanding Ideals of Black Black rights, I was even more excited. And I'll say why I was excited, because I've been asking over the last, I mean, I know I've been asking over the last 15 years, if not longer, well, who's done work on black Philadelphia and from my vantage point over the last politics, over the last 60 years? And I got various answers. So they see that you focus on um, early politics at the 19th century is really this, your work is really um, helpful. But you know, it's mm-hmm. something came out out of that I wanted to start with because this is Black History Month and and mm-hmm. just you know how to, you mentioned on, on one of the page, page 27 about the Mar- uh, the American Negro History Historical Society and mm-hmm. I wanted to know you know what that I, I seen the context in place but can you share with us what that historical society meant um, in relationship to black politics in Philadelphia, but what does history in relationship to, and you doing this investigation, mean to us as we look at our black electoral politics and power formation? Mm-hmm. Brother Richard, thank you very much for that question. Let me sort of immediately say uh, straight away that uh, a time for an awakening is the uh, 25th century version of that historical society. Mm. Um, let me eliminate any doubt uh, as to where this show sits within that particular history. Um, that, uh, that historical moment, that sighting uh, that you mentioned, um, where uh, Black Philadelphians were coming together and talking about the issues that were affecting uh, Black people. Uh, You see it uh, in uh, the early 20th century. But what you see in the early 20th century is really a rendition of what was taking place in the 19th century. And what was taking place in the 19th century was an extension of what had been taking place to the 18th century. <laughs> the key point here is that no matter what particular period, political period, where the uh, the political uncertainty 
of citizenship for black people in Philadelphia was in question. Immediately, the thinkers of, of um, the, the leading thinkers in the city, uh, to include those that were in the, uh, in the academy, those who were not in the academy, but nonetheless, members of some of uh, Philadelphia's leading black institutions, uh, understood the importance of black history as a way of being able to provide historical context for the moment in which they were in. And they asked very similar questions to those uh, which are being asked uh, today, right? Which is, um, uh, you know, how did we get to this particular point? Uh, what do we do to improve on the conditions that uh, Black people are facing? Um, and how does that help us to prepare for the future? Um, so the, the, uh, the meetings where Black leaders were coming together uh, in uh, that I cite in that first uh, chapter were the direct result of the deteriorating condition of black um, civil rights that grew out of the period of reconstruction, but were literally being violently attacked uh, in the early 20th century. They had already been, uh, they had already disappeared uh, by and large in the, uh, in the South. Um, this is the uh, the period that we uh, recognize as as post reconstruction, the period where uh, an insurgent um, uh, white supremacist element on local levels, with support at state levels, essentially sought to eradicate um, the uh, the uh, freedoms that had been hard earned as a result of the sacrifices that Blacks made in the Civil War to ultimately uh, bring the Union out of the clutches of an insurgent uh, traitor that had been the Confederacy. Mm. Uh, and uh, in Philadelphia particularly, um, it was uh, an effort that had its roots. The Civil War moment had its roots in many Black folks coming together to talk about uh, not only the growing nature of anti-Black violence, um, but the ways in which anti-Black violence had escalated um, in dramatic forms the moment the state of Pennsylvania in 1838 said that voting could only take place if you were white. It is in that moment that William Fortin comes forward and says that without the vote, they do not have the power to essentially win support. Uh, and what they were talking about was the importance that the vote had in leveraging that black political power to ensure that a modicum of freedom and protection were afforded to 
uh, a increasing or a burgeoning black community during what we call the Jacksonian age mm-hmm. or the antebellum era of the 19th century. And so when you see me talking about, uh, you know, the older institution in, uh, in that chapter, that first chapter, um, what I'm basically saying uh, in that first chapter is that what that Black Philadelphians are calling on their memory, their institutional memory, their political memory, that history, to begin to develop a set of strategies to deal with the increasing assault uh, on Black um, political uh, rights, Black uh, economic opportunities, uh, the Black body itself, and overall citizenship. The final point that I want to make, uh, because I want to allow for more questions to come forward, uh, when Folks are coming together and talking um, about uh, the moment, this moment where they are watching an escalation in the deterioration of of protections for black bodies. It is also uh, important to to understand um, that they are essentially not only Uh, seeking to put together a political strategy to address uh, things that are happening to them in the city and within their particular communities. As Black people were losing the vote across the South, the vote in the North, particularly in Philadelphia, became extremely important. They were also using history to develop both a local and a national strategy to deal with the deterioration of, of citizenship for black people in the early 20th century. And, and so this, this, uh, this historical society, as you said, provides this opportunity to do that kind of reflection in a, in a very um, institutional kind of manner um, that they, they pull together. Would that be fair to say? That would absolutely be fair because they were hosting speakers um, who were responsible for, uh, you know, introducing papers that reflected certain questions and certain themes. All of the themes, all of the questions reflected what was happening uh, to Black people uh, in the early 20th century. I mean, this is a moment where we are talking uh, the fact that the 15th Amendment, which only gave men, um, uh, the, the right to vote is in 1870. Um, and some 40-plus years later, what you see um, are the ways in which, um, you know, there is a direct attack uh, on the ability for um, Black people to use that vote. And I want to I make a very clear point here. Because even though black men were largely uh, able to vote by virtue of the 15th Amendment, the 20th, the 19th Amendment doesn't come along until uh, 1920, it would be wrong to conclude that 
how a black man cast his vote uh, in Philadelphia before 1920 was solely through a lens of black masculinity. That would be extremely wrong, and I make that point in the in the in that first uh, essay. Even though legal the legal right to vote was extended to a black man from 1870 up to 1920, that 50-year period, black women also influenced how black men voted, right? And in, if you look at that first essay, you will see how uh, black politics unfolded, not just in these historical societies, but also in very important political meetings inside some of Philadelphia's most revered black churches. Powerful. And, you know, the, as, I, as I was going through it, I wanted to kind of, because your, your uh, two articles kind of, I mean, two papers kind of like deal with two critical moments, you know, the, 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 from the um, 1880s through the, to, up to the 1920s and, and then going into the other one, the uh, 1960s. Um, and, and you mentioned about political strategy come being formulated early on, early on. And, and I like that you said it wasn't just a local, but a national strategy was going which um, another point that I've seen, and uh, I, hopefully I'm asking the right question, we'd like you to develop or build on uh, what this, you have made reference that they came out with an egalitarian principles of urban progressivism, um, mm-hmm. pervasive and, and anticipated. What, what, do you, what is th- this strategy? Um, can you elaborate on what that egalitarian principles, especially as it relates to urban, urban progressivism, progressivism? Yes, abso- absolutely, absolutely. That's a really, really great question. So I want you to think. I want you to think about it, um, Brother Richard, in, in this particular way. Um, black people had um, had been largely. Um, in uh, invested, uh, integrated, um, uh, tiered, uh, or or I should say deeply uh, connected to the Republican Party, right? Um, And they had largely stayed away from the Democratic Party because the Democratic Party had been known to be the reactionary party of the uh, slaveocracy in the South. And they had been known to be the reactionary party of um, of white uh, immigrants, ethnic uh, constituencies that uh, saw black people as a threat and saw the Republican Party equally as a threat because it extended citizenship rights and voting rights to black people. So black people... Um, by and large, uh, really turned to the Republican Party as a vehicle for being able to try and uh, integrate into the mainstream of of Philadelphia. Um, And and following Reconstruction, um, they proved to be the balance of power. They are the ones who ultimately shifted the control of the city from Democrats who held it 
during the period of uh, the Civil War and during the period uh, just before Reconstruction, um, Democrats held the city, uh, and once Blacks integrated into the Democratic Party and voted, they were the ones who shifted the balance of power. That's one of the reasons why Octavius Cotto was assassinated, Mm -hmm. uh, because he had been not just an incredible um, uh, organizer, he had been one of the most powerful voices of an emerging generation of Black leadership that was speaking to the broader issues that were happening in Philadelphia during the antebellum period and certainly during the period of Reconstruction. And the Democrats in the various wards um, in South Philadelphia during this period certainly knew that um, Octavius Caudill had been instrumental um, in basically creating a moment where the power of the city was going to shift from Democratic rule to Republican rule, right? So that gives somewhat of context for understanding the relationship, the political relationship of Black people to the Republican Party. So what is this thing called progressivism, right? Well, it has everything to do with the fact that by the early 20th century, the Republican Party had already uh, retrenched on its promises of black of civil rights to black people in the city of Philadelphia, right? They had basically concluded that there was no longer any real reason uh, for them to continue to be the party that would advance um, black progress uh, in the city. And they were starting to follow a a very conservative um, uh, form of politics with regards to the black vote. Um, And at that particular moment is when you see people like W.E.B. Du Bois, who comes out, he starts, of course, with the Niagara Movement, but following the Niagara Movement, you have uh, this moment where uh, the NAACP emerges, and they are articulating a similar type of of, uh, of argument about um, the need to rethink how Black political power and its relationship with the Republican Party should move forward uh, in the early decade on early decades of the 20th century, and so they began to look for progressive candidates, candidates who recognize that in many ways the political parties had become parties of political tyranny. Uh, And in Philadelphia's case, it had been the Republican Party. And so what you see um, is this moment where these black elite thinkers, these, these black thinkers who were largely holding the talks, talking about the history Um, started to break away from uh, the party faithful. They were still Republican, Brother Richard, in their thinking, but they no longer claimed a loyalty to the Republican Party. Uh, And as a result, they were willing to use their political party power to support a candidate that ultimately would reflect their goals to have stronger protections, because this is the period where 
black bodies are subject to violence. This is the period where uh, anti-black discrimination is happening in the nation's leading industrial economy. Philadelphia had the strongest industrial economy. The state of Pennsylvania had the strongest industrial economy. After the Civil War, the state of Pennsylvania, led by Philadelphia, was known as being the kingmaker. What I mean by that is that you could not get elected president unless Pennsylvania was on your side, right? Uh, And to this day, if you stop and think about how Biden got elected, it was through Pennsylvania, led by Philadelphia, right? And so this is extremely important to understand. Two forms of progressivism emerge, social progressivism and political progressivism. Social progressivism had everything to do with the deterioration of day-to-day life. You think about the book, uh, The Philadelphia Negro, that W.E.B. Du Bois penned. What did he lay out? He laid out the terrible um, conditions in which black people live, the, the crowded conditions uh, within the wards, right? He, the poor housing quality, the extreme degree of poverty, the fact that blacks had been barred from having any real uh, opportunity to earn a living wage within this rapidly growing industrial economy, even in areas of work where blacks had known to establish themselves as as the city was being transformed by migrants from the South that were coming up in the early 20th century and immigrants largely from Western, but also from Eastern Europe were coming into the city, the European immigration were displacing Blacks from long-held areas of employment. And so... um, what these progressive, these social progressives thought to do was to address issues involving housing, health care, uh, employment. Uh, these were uh, um, uh, blacks um, like um, Reverend Dr. Richard Wright, who followed uh, after Du Bois um, uh, and basically, uh, you know, sought to really uh, elevate, highlight the terrible social conditions of which black people lived in uh, Philadelphia. And he was able to find white political allies who were also seeking to put forward a similar type of political um, statement about the deteriorating conditions that white ethnics uh, many of those who were coming in to uh, the city face. And what, in fact, Dr. Wright says that he found the discrimination that black people faced and the favoritism that white immigrants faced almost incomprehensible. He said, because largely um, there is not a fundamental difference between Um, the challenges that both groups were facing as they sought to adjust to the new urban environment. Yet the degree of anti-Black hostility 
that black people faced, particularly the southern migrants, was very entrenched. Uh, And so white social progressives and black social progressives like Dr. Wright banded together to basically talk about the need to address some of the major social issues that black people, largely black southern migrants, uh, because these were the groups that were less established than some of the older um, black families in Philadelphia, and the issues that white immigrants were experiencing. So here is that egalitarian um, uh, bond that I'm talking about, right? Because black social progressives and white social progressives were trying to find ways to develop a coalition to deal with the deteriorating social conditions that both black poor and working class people face and white ethnic poor and working class people face. But that is very different than the political progressivism because even though the Republican Party had become corrupt, there is this new technocracy, this new class of politicians that are deeply steeped in business that are saying the Republican Party is the problem. They have run up the city's debt because of corruption. They ultimately use war politics as a basis to get jobs, to bankrupt the, the city. Uh, they use taxpayers' dollars uh, in order to build uh, political organizations, and those organizations have deep roots in the various wards, particularly the South wards. Uh, and they argued that a, in order to free up the city's capacity from uh, this political machine that drained the city's resources in order to perpetuate its political power, a new business model, a new progressive political model was needed. The problem with that, Brother Richard, is that black people were in the Republican Party. And even though the party had been corrupt, black political leaders had been very skillful to use the power of the black vote in order to meet the needs of black people in the seventh ward and the 30th ward, particularly because those were the most populated wards during the early 20th century. And so even though the Republican party and the ward structure was corrupt, what I'm arguing is that there is no idyllic situation. Black political progress operated in a tension with the political corruption of the Republican Party. With this new political um, progressive element of white businessmen sought to do is to say the party structure is eliminated, is, is corrupt, and we must eliminate it. With that sweep, they also sought to disenfranchise black people. Because despite the corrupt nature of the Republican Party, 
1911, Philadelphia was the only city in the urban north where you had a black city council member and a black member in the state legislature. It didn't exist any other place in the country. It is in this moment that that black state legislature, legislature, uh, that black state rep, was also someone who had been responsible for helping to write um, a very important uh, civil rights bill, right? And that was State Rep. Harry W. Bass, right? He introduced the new civil rights bill to reform the civil rights legislation of 1887 to strengthen that legislation so that it reflected the deteriorating conditions, right, that blacks were facing. Um, And so his election uh, coming out of the uh, South Philadelphia was a direct response to the ability of black people to leverage their votes, to put a member of their race into the state legislature, who not only sought to address the issues that black Philadelphians were facing, but black Pennsylvanians were facing across the entire state. And ultimately what occurs is that the uh, sort of promises made by this this reform party, the Keystone Party that I outlined, the promises that they made to give black people a fair shake Uh, to allow them to continue to have a role in self-governance, not only within the ward, but also in the city government, it immediately became uh, the opposite of that. These uh, progressives, Republican progressives, mimicked the very actions of the segregation of the Democratic segregationists in the South. Um, And what we see is with the election of Wilson Good, not Wilson Good, uh, Woodrow Wilson, forgive me, with the election of Woodrow Wilson as president, what we ultimately see is a coalition between progressive Republicans like those who now ran the the Reform Administration from 1911 to 1915. We see a coalition between uh, reform Republicans and reform Democrats. And it's this form of political progressivism, in the same way that it sought to disenfranchise blacks in the South, it sought to do the very same thing with black people in Philadelphia. And, And I will stop here because once this is found out, once this union between uh, political progressives and Philadelphia, that black people supported, they supported them because they believed that like social progressives, political progressives were going to do the right thing. Once political progressives revealed themselves as not only uh, not willing to do the right thing, but to basically disenfranchise and oppress black people, it is in, that is a pivotal moment where black people 
turn the whole situation around and begin to engage in a citywide mobilization. And, and I will stop here um, because I really just wanted to lay out this tension between political progressives and social progressives. Social progressives were egalitarian, did seek to do the right thing. Political progressives were the complete opposite. What they wanted was black support only to use that support to ultimately eliminate black people from the political arena. Richard, let me let me throw this in before you. Uh, no, 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 go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. And I, I, I want to shift gears slightly. Uh, Dr. Harris, uh, if you look at the masses of our people, um, and I'm, I'm going maybe a little beyond Philadelphia now, just doing a general uh, uh, overlook or overview. If you look at the masses of our people, we've been on a merry-go-round, so to speak. Uh, we go around and around, and when the ride stops, you're almost at the same spot. When you look at the the theme of the first Negro convention in 1830 here in Philadelphia, and it was one of the main topics on there was immigration or, or leaving here, going to Canada because of the oppression that our people were facing here. And Haiti. Okay. If you, if you speed it up past the... Uh, at the end of the Civil War, when uh, General Sherman met with um, leadership of that t- uh, at that time of uh, of church leadership, I think it was over sixty of our elders in Savannah, and asked them what they mm-hmm. wanted for basically turning the tide of that war. They told them that they wanted to live by themselves because they didn't feel as though they could live among whites because of the the hatred that they felt. They didn't say they hated whites. They said the hatred was from the other side. They wanted to live by themselves. They wanted land. And they didn't want to be given the land. They wanted to purchase the land eventually after they could get on their feet. From that period on, just say about 1870 to the end of that century, black folks adopted, uh, for lack of a better term, a nationalist mentality to work among themselves and to move our people forward. And you could see that just during that period alone, everybody benefited. Sure, you had blacks then that had a little more than others. And some of the, the of, our, of our early politicians had more than others. But everybody was benefiting from what our people were doing during that period. They formed uh, political formations, the, the African-American League, later on the Niagara League, to work among themselves to help our people. But you could see that during the turn of that century that the boys and others broke away from the group to form other groups, the NAACP and all, where they would work with Europeans. Uh, William Monroe Trotter and others didn't think that was a good idea. And if you look later on, the boys changed his mindset maybe 30 30 years later that what he did might have been a mistake but I don't want to push it up that far all I'm saying is that during this period a national and and I'll use it because I don't have a better term to use a nationalist mentality being adopted by people was the best thing for them in this system that we live under because 
after uh, 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 the turn of the century, when people started getting involved, other people of other nationalities started getting involved with our political formations, uh, anything we were doing economically, then it started to being a direction given to them, not a direction that benefited the whole. It always benefited a select few, and that always hurts our people to the point now where we see that these things are almost coming full circle. Uh, the Zoom presentation that I saw when you dealt with the, the period of the 60s and the mindset that was coming across our people, that was an old mindset that was that, that uh, forefathers before them, maybe two, three generations, had adopted where we start working among ourselves because the people seen where that was our only salvation. But again, you've seen a mindset, a small cadre of people that are put in power by others that direct people in another direction. I, I just want to get your opinion on what I mentioned about the direction of our people, uh, uh, especially after that Civil War ended, for a period of about 20 or 25 years, what they were doing and how that that script sort of flipped, so to speak. So I, I thank you, uh, Brother Elliot, for um, that context and the question. I want to basically say that I I always, um, particularly in my classes, I always establish that um, there are seven black political ideologies um, of which uh, radical integration, which immediately followed the Civil War, was the first one. And black nationalism, which is very different than radical black nationalism, and I will explain the distinction in just one second, um, emerges. Black nationalism emerges as a direct response to exactly what you just said, the anti-black hatred that proliferated across the South um, but had already been in existence in the North. And I want to be very clear here because um, I want um, certainly you and Brother Richard, as well as your listeners, to understand that anti-Black racism doesn't begin in the South. It actually begins in the North. Uh -oh. um, and, and um in fact, um, these two essays that Brother Elliot was talking about, um, uh, Brother Richard, really are the result of um, a book that I am nearly finished with that traces black political history from the 1830s to the election of Wilson Good, and then my epilogue collects the late 1980s to the present. And in this book, I argue that if the American experiment in um, democracy was going to work with regards to racial integration anywhere, it should have worked in Philadelphia, but it did not work in Philadelphia. It didn't work in Philadelphia nearly to the degree that the Enlightened principles put forward during the Enlightenment proclaimed um, and it has everything to do with the fact that Philadelphia, unlike any other city, has a very interesting um, bifurcated identity. On the one hand, it is a city that is 
the most liberal um, in the nation's history. It began uh, with the liberal religious ideology uh, uh, that was connected to the Quaker religion, i.e. city of brotherly love, despite the fact that the Quakers also uh, enslaved black people. Um, And it was the birthplace or home to the enlightened principles, the enlightened ideas that gave uh, rise to uh, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, Um, It served as the nation's first capital. Um, All of the principles that shaped uh, the American Revolution um, in many ways had uh, its home located in Philadelphia. Um, Philadelphia geographically is just a stone's throw from Delaware, which had been a slave state in the Upper South, Maryland, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And as a result of that geographic um, uh, proximity, Philadelphia was also one of the most anti-black cities in the nation. That dual identity of being the most liberal and one of the most anti-black exists to this very day. It is a reflection of the nation writ large. So if we want to gain an understanding why after after, uh, promises made to blacks by the, the colonialists, if you don't fight for Britain, we will give you citizenship. Why it fails, this is what I look at. I look at why it fails, and I I basically make the argument that there are periods of progress that are met with entrenched periods of anti-progress or retrogression. It starts with the revoking of the vote in 1838, only to fight a civil war to regain the vote in 1870, the ways in which the Republican Party begins to retrench on its promise to black people, not even before the ink has dried on the 15th Amendment. I track the ways in which black people are starting to form independent political responses to the racism that the Republican Party is showing them as early as eight and the early 1870s. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what you are identifying are cycles, and those cycles are the result of what I, I proclaim to be the distinction between laws and uh, culture. Laws are a byproduct of culture. But as difficult, Brother Richard, I mean, Brother Elliot and Brother Richard, as it is to change a law, it is much more difficult to change a culture, right? So here what we see are the ways in which black progress represented a threat. And as a result of that threat, which was deeply entrenched within the culture, the laws became almost, um, I would conclude, uh, irrelevant to the broader claim 
of a type of protectionism that exists within the culture. So where does black nationalism come into this conversation? Well, it comes into the conversation because immediately after the Civil War, laws emerged like the 14th Amendment to integrate blacks. The 14th Amendment gave blacks in the South the right to vote before the 15th Amendment gave blacks the right to vote all over the country. And what do we see in the South? We see we see violence upon black bodies um, immediately uh, happening. We see the ways in which there are barriers, racial barriers, to prevent black people from being able uh, to vote. We see the development of the uh, the black codes that are designed to restrict black mobility. Uh, we see the ways in which the development of tenant farming and sharecropping uh, replace slavery um, and essentially uh, ensure that black people will not have an opportunity in the transformations that are happening in the economy as a result of industrialization. Black people are now um, being overwhelmingly um, blocked from having any access to this uh, industrial economy that provided much better paying jobs. There are two exceptions here. One is the World War One, and the other is World War Two. In World War One, when the uh, the nation decided that it had to shut down European immigration, blacks in the South particularly became very important to the much more industrialized urban centers of the North to basically push the war economy forward. But they still encountered in World War One deep anti-black resistance, not being able to live where they wanted to live. Not only that, they were given the worst jobs. This occurred not only in World War I, but also in World War II. Black nationalism, therefore, was a response to the failure of integration, the failure of of um, the uh, the laws, um, not only during Reconstruction, but also a failure of the presidency uh, of Woodrow Wilson, particularly in World War One, uh, to address the assaults that Black people were facing, even as Black people were engaged in heroic actions in winning democracy for Europeans, only not to be able to have access to that very same democracy at home. It is in this moment in the post-World War I period where you see a shift from black nationalism, which essentially are black responses to the needs of black people because black folks are shut out of the mainstream uh, society. They had to rely on self-help, self-reliance. That's the essence of black nationalism, which you just talked about. It is what Martin Delaney talked about, right? Martin Delaney was there when Sherman made his made his uh, his, his his speech. Martin Delaney had been a major in the uh, in the uh, uh, the colored troops 
um, and was there when they were talking about the significance of reparations, i.e., 40 acres and a mule. Right? It is in this post-World War I moment where black nationalism undergoes a radical transformation during the era of the New Negro Movement, right? In the New Negro Movement, we got massive migration, i.e. the Great Migration, out of the rural regions of the South to the urban areas of the South, and then from the urban areas of the South to the urban areas of the industrialized North. It is in this moment that we see the development of jazz, a new black cultural aesthetic to redefine black agency in relationship to these changing times. It is in this moment that we see the Harlem Renaissance. It is also in this moment where we see a repudiation to integration by Marcus Garvey. Um, and so Marcus Garvey as the leader of the UNIA and ultimately the symbol of Garveyism, which today remains the largest global black mass movement in, in world history. He argued very clearly that integration would not work because white people would not respect black people in part because they were not willing to share power. He also made the argument uh, that black people um, who did not know their history would be like a tree without roots, right? And so this conversation about history remains extremely important. But if you stop and think about this moment in the post-war one era, the early 1920, if you move ahead uh, to the late 1950s, you see radical black nationalism reemerge, largely by Malcolm X. And it becomes in Philadelphia the uh, ideology that Cecil B. Moore argues now is essential because Cecil B. Moore also tried the integrationist model and locked on to radical black nationalism. And he used the precepts of black, radical black nationalism to ultimately begin to lay claim to the political mechanisms in wards across Philadelphia that were predominantly inhabited by black people. That's one of the reasons why he first targeted the 7th Senatorial District that was one of the largest black state senatorial districts in Philadelphia that had for the longest period of time been that seat had been controlled by Charles Weiner, a white man, in a predominantly black district. And he ran Marshall Shepard Jr., Marshall Lorenzo Shepard, to, um, uh, uh, to displace um, Weiner. He didn't succeed, but he understood that the precepts of black nationalism were the only thing that were going to work in order for black people to be able to leverage their power and to use that power to address their issues. Because by the time 1964 hits Philadelphia, it is very clear 
as it had been during the 19th century in Reconstruction and in the early 20th century, that the liberal model of integration had failed to address the pressing issues that Black people were facing in some of the most populated neighborhoods um, across Philadelphia, North Central Philadelphia, Southwest Philadelphia, um, uh, and certainly in certain communities in South Philadelphia as well. We're going to take a break. So there is a reoccurring theme. We're going to take a brief break, and when we come back, we'll continue the conversation. You can get involved, too, with a question or comment by dialing 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. We're in conversation with Arthur, Director of Africana Studies and Associate Professor of History and Public Affairs at Utica University in New York, Dr. Clemmy L. Harris. We'll be right back. Brother Richard, on Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit them up at timeforanawakening at gmail.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American-owned and operated insurance agency in business for over 20 years, located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services, representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies, offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 21- 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. Escape the digital plantation. Abibitumi.com, abibitumi.tv, abibitumitv.com, abibitumi.store are here for you. You are ready to be free of non-African social media. Don't run from danger, run to safety. Abibitumi.com is here for you. You are ready to be free of digital plantations to control your own products. Abibitumi.store is here for you. A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I. Black Power. A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I. The only word you need to know to join your global you black family. To join your interconnected Kometsu Black communities, escape the digital plantation now. Abibitumi.com, 
abibitumi.tv, abibitumitv.com, abibitumi.store. We are here for you. Escape the digital plantation. A new era, a new phase of the struggle, where we have moved from a struggle for decency, which characterized our struggle for 10 or 12 years, to a struggle for genuine equality. And this is where we're getting the resistance because there was never any intention uh, to go this far. People were reacting to Bull Connor and to Jim Clark rather than acting in good faith for the realization of genuine equality. Do you think white people in this country, and I'm talking about non-segregationists, people devoid or thinking they're devoid of racism, do you have any idea of what they want the Negro to be in America? I think the vast majority of white Americans uh, will go but so far. It's a kind of installment plan for equality. And uh, they are always looking for an excuse uh, to go but so far. And know that this problem needs to be solved and we can't keep relegating it to generation after generation because a few of us got a little money, a few of us got positions, a few of us have wealth while the masses of our people are going steadily down. No one man can rise above the condition of his people. See, brother said responsibility. Is it, is it that we should let them take responsibility to do for us, or should we pool the knowledge that's at the table, the power that's in our community, the wealth that's in our community to change the harsh reality of black life in America? We have to do the job of fulfilling the black agenda. Whites are expert game players in their contests to maintain absolute power. One of the time-honored gimmicks is to point to individual blacks who've achieved recognition. But look at Rath Bunch. Think about Lena Horne or Marian Anderson. Look at Jackie Robinson. They made it as one of those who has made it. I would like to be thought of as an inspiration to our young but I don't want them lied to. Name them for me. The examples of blacks who made it. For virtually everyone you name, I can give you a sordid piece of factual information on how they have been mistreated, humiliated. Not being able to fight back is a form of severe punishment. I come here tonight and plead with you. Believe in yourself and believe that you're somebody. As I said to the group last night, nobody else can do this for us. No document can do this for us. No Lincolnian Emancipation Proclamation can do this for us. No Kennesonian or Johnsonian Civil Rights Bill can do this for us. If the Negro is to be free, he must move down into the inner resources of his own soul and sign with a pen and ink of self-assertive manhood his own emancipation proclamation. 
let anybody take your manhood. Born Awakening is a proud part of the Black Talk Radio Network, the number one independent black digital and podcasting platform. Welcome back to Time for Awakening Sunday edition. It's uh, 8.16 here in this Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening. Our guest this evening in conversation, author, director of Africana Studies, associate professor of history and public affairs at Unica University in New York, Dr. Clemmy. L. Harris, the discussion centers around political, black political power formations of the 20th century, Philadelphia, and beyond. You can get be part of this conversation by dialing 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. <clears throat> Richard, I'm going to pass it back to you, but you heard uh, Dr. Harris kind of sub- uh, a, a summary of the conundrum or the impasse that we face as a people, Richard. Uh, the 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 uh, the uh, blueprint of integration, or the blueprint of uh, black nationalism that our ancestors had adopted and was working. These are the things we're going to have to discuss as a people, and that has nothing to do with anybody else in the conversation. We got to deal with this. This is something that we got to nail uh, to. Uh, to, to come to an agreement on because, you know, other people have been kind of using this as almost like, and I'll use a lack of a better term, a political football with our people and, and labeling people, brandishing, oh, stay away from these guys. They're doing this. Don't be affiliated with these type of people. Uh, he's a radical black nationalist. And, you know, and, and, and these labels, some of our people are afraid of dealing with their own. We got to come to the table with one another and decide which way that's going to benefit the masses of our people. It's it's got to be talked about, Richard. I'll just pass it back to you because I know you had some more things that you want to touch on with uh, with uh, Dr. Harris. You know, it's it's interesting. This this you know, um, Dr. Harris, you you kind of really. And wait, wait, wait a minute, Richard. I, I didn't want mean to cut you. When, when, I, when I play those clips and you hear some of the ancestors' voices, and, and one of the voices that you heard is not an ancestor, but you hear some of our ancestors' voices, they're basically saying the same things. They're, they're dealing with this issue themselves. When we take another break, I'm going to play more voices. They're dealing with this issue. We can't avoid it. We, we just can't avoid it. We've been trying to. I think other people have been trying to get our people in positions of power to avoid it. But we can't avoid this thing because there's too many of our people that's, that's suffering. The masses of our people are suffering, whether it's from police brutality, uh, 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 joblessness, uh, uh, hopelessness in these cities, uh, blight. It's too many of our people suffering. we got to deal with this. Uh, brother, brother Richard, before you move forward, can I simply say one quick thing? Uh, because I think that what Brother Elliot said is important, and I think it re- it requires a bit of a response um, to really set the context uh, so that folks gain an understanding on the profound nature of what he said, and then I will address anything that you have for me, Brother Richard. Um Emancipation put forward a very interesting um, proposal 
black people could be free and they could have access to political rights, but no corresponding economic rights. You cannot have strong political rights unless you have correspondingly strong economic rights. (laughs) They are in a dialectical relationship with one another, which is why the tenant farming and the sharecropping plantation structures were so very effective because black folks had to rely on the former slave, uh, the those who enslaved them. They had to rely on those who had enslaved them for economic opportunity and therefore not able to really take advantage of their, of their uh, uh, political rights. And this issue uh, has bedeviled uh, black um, uh, social, economic, political um, progress uh, since ever since then. It remains with us today. The other thing that I want to say is that integration as a system is a fine concept, just like the enlightened principles that shape the foundation of this country. I might add that on the issue of anti-black discrimination of the three nations that were part of the era of revolution in the 18th century and late 19th century, I mean late uh, uh, late 18th century and early 19th century, only Haiti, only Haiti in 1804 guaranteed constitutional protections against discrimination based on skin. The United States wouldn't do that until 1965. Or 64, forgive me. So this whole issue that we're talking about is one rooted in power. And what we are doing is talking about the limitations of integration. When integration is resisted by deep cultural forces with strong political and economic power that seeks to ultimately regress black people to a state of second-class citizenship and maintain them in that status. History becomes extremely important because of what it teaches. But here is the problem. You talked about those very important uh, conventions that were held in the 18th and the the late 18th and and the, uh, the 19th century. Well, those conventions are about political education. They were also taking place during the period of Reconstruction. In fact, you will find that in a major period where black people are facing a major political moment, there is an education about power. The question that we have to think about is whether or not such education can be sustained and not happen as a response to an attack on power. Mm. The final point that I'll make is that in this talk that I gave the day before, the I appeared at the Historical Society of Pennsylvania. I was at the Free Library on 40th and uh, Walnut. And as I gave my talk about 
uh, Cecil B. Moore and how he embodied these uh, the post-World War or the post-war moment of radical black nationalism and sought to ultimately use those to uh, acquire a very strong base of political power in black wars. And I started talking about this seventh senatorial election and the, uh, the fourth congressional district and how that had been redistricted to become the second congressional district. I had a gentleman raise his hand multiple times. The brother raised his hand. He says, wait a minute, you're talking about wards and districts. What are those? What, what's a ward? And it took me a moment because what I thought was just a talk for well, that brother in the back was instruction. He had no understanding what a ward was. So the importance of education is critical. Yes. Right? It, it is absolutely critical because the presumption is that these conversations that we're having and the concepts that we're talking about, the presumption is that everybody understands it as the three of us do. But what I have found is that that is not the case. There is some very basic work that must be done. Mm -hmm. uh, Brother Richard, I will now yield so that you can address any question to me that you'd like. And, and I really would like to continue this the, the conversation in this realm because it's a, it's a couple of, of themes, you know, and, and one of the questions I was going to ask, but I'm not going to ask it, but just put it out there in relationship to, because when I read your paper, and definitely I'm looking forward to your book coming out. Now, I want, I want to let you know right now, don't be, don't. I mean, I know you got to take the time to put it together and all of that, and you said you were close to the end, but Brother Man is ready, you know, for it, so... Um, I understand. <laughs> it's definitely needed. But one thing I've seen in the um, two hours you dealt with and in the pieces that you did, you were very, you were very um, meticulous about the people who were engaged in the party politics when we're talking about the party power, right? Like mm -hmm. um, making making the point of. You know when um, George White, George H. White ran, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the 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 mechanics of that, or um, when Robert N. C. Nix ran, mm -hmm. um, and when you talk about you know um, our political awareness, it, it just you know I, I want you to expand on those two. Um, what went on? Because I think they provide two different. Um, process which you alluded to with um Cecil and 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 I think I uh, forget the um the uh, the reverend that what, what ran at that point but the the mechanics of the power relationship that's in the party mm -hmm. mechanism and the people mm -hmm. and how they support one against the other and if we're not politically informed and this is where the crust in my question um to what you were raising we can't just be informed generally about politics and history. We also have to be informed, I'm asking you, more about the mechanics of the party politics, the individuals involved, and the outcome, the benefits, patronage that comes out of that. Is that important absolutely. And to know? Absolutely. So let me start first with the mechanics. 
The mechanics of um, of politics has to do with understanding the relationship between votes and the party machinery. In Philadelphia today, uh, black people constitute the largest uh, ethnic group in the city. Um, that had not always been the case. And when uh, the Republican Party, um, which held uh, control of Philadelphia for nearly six decades, they were able to do that because they controlled the mechanics of the process. It is not that black political leaders turn their backs on black people. That is not what I'm arguing. Um, it is the fact that the black vote held the balance of power, and to keep that power in the hands of the Republicans was also about a trade. That trade came in the form of patronage. It came in the form of of um, of electing certain black people into seats of power at the local and state level. And that power was used uh, to gain access to uh, the local government and the state government and, uh, and ensure that um, the resources from both would support institutional development in um, in Philadelphia. I mean, that's if you think about that um, uh, that first um, that first article, I lay out how um, black folks um, in Phil in February in 1912, right. Um, the era, the day, uh, just a few days before Lincoln's birthday, there is a a groundbreaking for um, you know for Mercy uh, Hospital, um, and um, the reason for this is the ability of a uh, black middle class that had been able to build black institutions in a segregated structure but also to use their vote to gain access to resources at the city and state level to fuel black institutional development in predominantly segregated space. This is a moment where no white hospital would train a black doctor in Philadelphia. They certainly didn't train black nurses, and they scarcely treated black people. So Douglas Hospital and then uh, Mercy Hospital become extremely important. They are not only a reflection of black institutional power uh, in 1912, they're also a reflection of the black migration that is um, into Philadelphia, causing Philadelphia to have um, one of the largest uh, black communities in a northern industrial center. Um, so the mechanism are the result of, uh, or the mechanics are the result of black political leaders who understand 
how to manipulate the mechanisms of power um, and to ensure that there is black representation within the power structure. But again, as I stated before the break, black political progress existed in a tension with corruption. Um, There was no other way for it to occur. It was a very impure um, uh, relationship, but it was critical because black people were still outside of any real government protection um, or government agency that would help them to get better paying jobs into the industrial economy. And so the public jobs uh, at the city level were the only real positive source of employment. Um, There's a moment here where the uh, the unions become uh, the the municipal union becomes important, right? And the municipal union would eventually overtake the significance of black political leaders in the wards. Um, but in the early 20th century, the mechanisms, the mechanics, were the results of understanding uh, the political structure. I lay out in that first chapter uh, the election of Amos Scott uh, to magistrate. He is the first black person in the history of Philadelphia to be elected on a citywide basis. He had uh, a very close relationship with one of the most uh, powerful white political leaders in South Philadelphia, a guy by the name of William Vare. Um, Vare had ultimately surpassed Boris Penrose, who had been a U.S. senator, and before uh, there, Boris Penrose had controlled uh, the political machinery in both the city of Philadelphia and the state. Boris Penrose had power to make and break presidents, and that was largely the result of the of the machinery that came out of Philadelphia, the leading city in the state of Pennsylvania, and Pennsylvania having the most powerful industrial economy. When we move forward um, in time, uh, one of the things that we ultimately uh, see is that the machinery um, becomes uh, also a, a mechanism to oppress um, black people And that oppression has everything to do with the fact that the deeper blacks are uh, incorporated into the machine power, the machine structure, the control of what happens in black communities is ultimately decided by white political bosses who have no connection to the black community whatsoever. what allowed there to be some degree of agency within the black community is when black independent political action emerged. That's why that first chapter is so very important because it shows how in one particular moment when black political 
um, when black politics had become so deeply embedded in the Republican Party that the only way to return some of that power to black people was for black people to lead an independent movement uh, to reallocate, to reappropriate that power, and then use that power to elect people that they deem um, who would represent their interests. In other words, they had to recapture the balance of power. Balance of power politics uh, are what black people have been playing um, across America since uh, Reconstruction. It only changed when black people started to become um, uh, candidates for mayor in the late 1960s, um, um, uh, 1967. Quite frankly, we, we see Hatcher um, uh, and, and Carl Stokes emerge, Stokes in Cleveland as the first black mayor of Cleveland and Hatcher uh, as the first black mayor in Gary, Indiana. Um, we see that emerge. Um, and then uh, a couple of years later, um, in 1970 or so, we see uh, Gibson emerge as the first black mayor in Newark. Um, and then you hear all of this news that Philadelphia is next. That is in 1971 when Hardy Williams runs. Uh, for uh, for uh, for mayor and does better than any other individual, better than Georgie Woods, who ran in 67, better than Cecil B. Moore, who ran in 67. Hardy Woods polls some 50,000 votes, but those 50,000 votes were the result of this, yet again, independent political pulse that's shaping the city. And Williams would not run again. Bowser would run in 75 uh, and lose, and lose largely because the black community could not feel him. He had become too closely aligned with the middle-class, liberal, professional, uh, integrationist model, not recognizing the limitations of being so deeply incorporated in that structure. In 79, when Bowser runs again, he is running, and he is running as an independent. Right? Um, it is also important to recognize that between 68 and 78, the Black Political Forum transformed the political structure in the city, yeah. largely they are responsible for the current structure that exists, right? And it is in this moment that the black political forum not only calls for an independent political movement within the black political power structure and voters of the city, they also recognize that there are, um, that the black community is growing, the vast majority of black Philadelphia is not registered. <laughs> and those that are registered are not really inspired to vote. And from 68 through 
78, the Black Political Forum would have civic education that went into the various wards across Black Philadelphia to talk about the history and to teach them the civics and the importance on voting. That moment between 68 and 78 was about claiming the mechanics, the mechanisms of political power in predominantly black wards and to ensure that that power could be used to elect people to reflect the interests of black people, black people who would advocate for the issues that folks were facing, police brutality, hypersegregation, poverty, people, um, uh, uh, high degree of, 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 uh, of unemployment, right? This is the period where we see, you know, the John White Juniors and the David Richardsons uh, emerge. It is out of this period that Reverend Gray became a congressman to replace Nix, who had basically been an extension of the Democratic machine's power. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, And the final cycle that you would see in that independent moment came with the Black United Front in 78. Right. The Black United Front emerges, quite frankly, the Black United Front emerges in 1979, but they came out of this moment in 78 where the anti-Black racism in Philadelphia reached a point so bad that Philadelphia scarcely looked different than Birmingham, Alabama in the 1960s. So the point that I'm making, gentlemen, of Brother Richard and Brother Elliot, is that the integrationist model has its limitations. If you have the resources, then you can leverage those resources and the integrationist model will give you a return. But if you don't have those resources, then ultimately only having a strong, independent black political structure where everyday black people are receiving a political history and a political education that therefore allows them to be deeply informed about their power and how that history helps them to also understand the cyclical nature of racism that we are talking about right now. It is in those moments, in those flashpoints, that we see major shifts occur because this started with power. It was about power that began the first abduction of black people from the hinterland in Africa. Mm. It was about power that ultimately led those with investment capital to invest in the globalization of enslavement. It was about power to ensure that once the domestic institution of slavery was ended, uh, that black people would face a second-class citizenship called Jim Crow. It was about power that Reconstruction would meet a violent end only to have those same rights regenerated 
in uh, 1964 and 65, and then, of course, the 1968 Voting Rights Act. The, 19, uh, six, no, the 1968 Fair Housing Act, right? That same year in 68, we see the assassination of Dr. King, the apostle of peace, who ultimately lost his life in the most violent nature. Then we see the assassination of Bobby Kennedy. And it is in that moment that the post-civil rights moment in 68 is ushered in. Ten years after that, we see strong attacks against the hard-fought victories of the civil rights movement unfolding all across the country. Proposition 13 in California. Rizzo in Philadelphia talking about the need to launch a national white rights movement. And of course, it wasn't very long after that that we see the emergence of of um, Ronald Reagan, who ultimately was able to uh, convince many uh, within the working class who were white and ethnic and democratic to vote with him. And we know the succession of conservatism that flows from Reagan. Um, and I would argue that where we are right now is in another moment, right? This moment that we're in right now is a response to not just the election of Barack Obama as the nation's first two-term black mayor. What we are right now is also the, a response to the fact that in, in that period just before Barack is elected, we see the ascension of black governors, one of whom I had the pleasure of working for, and that is former Governor David A. Patterson. It has been about power, gentlemen, it will always be about power. You know, Elliot, um, I, and Dr. Harris, I, where, where we are, where I am right now, I know we need to have you come back, whether it's before your book is finished, um, when your book is finished, and after your book is finished. Because it's so many, when you raise these two aspects of the type of um, political education that we, we need or how the conventions were, political and the mechanics of the political process in relationship to power, not necessarily for us to do, but in order to be able to analyze what's going on now. And, and the example you gave of the young man who was in that audience, because it seems to me that that needs to be the crux of the organizing effort with all the success of political elections that's going on from the committee, war, um, council, state, and even national representatives in these districts that obviously is not going on to understand the politics. No, mechanics. That's, that's, that, that, that's absolutely correct. Because if you stop and you think about it, look, the fundamentals of power in a ward is the committeeman. Right. The committeemen come together and they elect the ward leader. Right. But the ward leader has the blessing of the people who control the Democratic 
Central Committee uh, in in Philadelphia, right? Um, and you know, I, uh, brother Richard, I was also talking to a young brother by the name of uh, David Rose, who, um, and one of the things that he said to me was that he did not believe there was anything such as a black Democrat, and I was a little confused by what he said, and I said, can you explain? And then he laid out, you know, the fact that um, that people in his ward are so extremely detached, um, and that at the end of the day, um, he is dealing with uh, these the developers who use their economic power um, to influence the zoning board and the zoning board allows them to rezone certain areas uh, and then they come in to redevelop those areas and uh, the people who are redeveloping those areas don't look like the people who reside in those areas as those areas are being redeveloped they are essentially being forced out through a process of gentrification that's actually what happened quite frankly to the uc townhomes on uh, the U- University City townhomes on Market Street in West Philadelphia, mm-hmm. right? I mean, one of the reasons I tie the 60s together is to show how Walter Palmer, who had been from the Black Bottom, who had been an activist, who was part of the Black People Unite Unity movement, um, uh, and ultimately had become a history professor at Penn, had worked with this predominantly white student organization, uh, um, you know, SDS, Student for a Democratic Society, that took up the mantle to help uh, stop in and other institutions from completely destroying uh, um, or displacing um, black people from what had been the black bottom. There. Uh, ability to uh, to bring political pressure uh, upon the University of Pennsylvania is what ultimately resulted in a deal being struck where the private corporations owned by members within the Board of Trustees, by some of the people who constituted the Board of Directors within the West Philadelphia Corporation, those who were on the board of directors from the University City Science Center, uh, what had been the uh, University of Science, which is now St. Joe's in West Philadelphia, um, and some of those at Drexel, they were the ones who said, we want land and we want you to pay for low-rent housing um, that will allow some of these families to stay and what had been the black bottom. That's what led to the development of the university town homes. And now the Altman Group, which was responsible for ensuring that those with Section 8 vouchers would continue to live in what is now prime real estate, the moment they said, nope, we're not doing that anymore, we're not in the business of affordable housing, pins, uh, redevelopment, i.e. gentrification um, uh, mechanisms kicked in um, and folks were facing eviction as of July of last year. Mm. Power. 
It's always about power. And I have to say, uh, Dr. Harris was just with um, Walt um, Thursday, and I'm one of those people who came through Black People University, um, you know, later than, say, Dave or or Shaka or uh, others who who became, you know, so um, and it, it's uh, so we we have, and that's why it's important to continue this conversation um, because mm. uh, even. Um, even in other cities, uh, as you outlined in relationship to the historical narrative of even these black bears coming into being, we can we have to be more clear about how the party power, you know, mechanics work, so that we can make appropriate now uh, assessment, so that we can be able to do appropriate organizing more than just what I kind of hear. Ha- going on and I, and and I apologize because you you're raising so many points that we here on time for awakening continue to try to do and you're really as they say elucidating the getting down into the weeds because people want to stay in the stratosphere when we have if we're talking about power we have to get down in the weeds so I'm really appreciating um, the work that you've done in order to assist us to do that well, I'm grateful that uh, Brother Richard um, uh, extended this invitation uh, to me. I, I will say in closing two things. One of the reasons that this conversation is so important um, is because uh, there has never been a system where black people have been powerless. Even when you think about the transatlantic slave system, you will be able to find stories of resistance. Right? I'm teaching a course now that examines um, the role of black women at the center of what we call black transnationalism or black internationalism, which is essentially a global form of political resistance to racialized oppression that has its direct birth as a political resistance to white supremacy's globalization vis-a-vis the transatlantic slave system. Here we look at two major traditions of black transnationalism or black internationalism, one being revolution, the other one being revival. Or revivalism, um, and it is important here to recognize that um, there is always a uh, a very important story that can prove to be extremely educational in looking at how black political resistance becomes not only a response to oppression, but can then be wielded in such a way that it constitutes a form of accountability for those in power. Mm. That's really important to understand. The second thing that I will say uh, is that this project is one that was a mandate from my former uh, dissertation advisor who basically said to me, that I think what you need to do is to write a political history of Philadelphia that builds on W.E.B. Du Bois's The Philadelphia Negro. Um, 
And, and so what my project does is it, it, it looks at Philadelphia before the Philadelphia Negro so that readers will gain an understanding of what the city was like before Du Bois gets there. And then it takes it from where Du Bois finishes and it takes it all the way up to and through the election of good covering um, certainly the early episode of MOVE um, and how that influences the second episode of MOVE. And then the epilogue takes it up to the present moment. And it is my hope, it is my hope that uh, when the book is finally published, that it will generate conversations like this to happen all over the city, not merely among black people, but also among uh, white people, uh, among our brothers and sisters who are of, um, of uh, Latin ethnicity, of Asian ethnicity, um, because this is a structure that largely uh, is the perpetuation of a uh, what I call a colorblind racist structure that ultimately gives the illusion of inclusion while perpetuating oppression. Um, and my hope is that it will trigger uh, conversations like this to move um, not just forward as a response to a particular moment. My hope is that um, many of the very uh, storied black institutions in Philadelphia will see that just as we need uh, daily education, we need daily political education because the problem that black people will always have is having political power and still struggling to have concomitant uh, equity with regards to economic power. Um, and if we have political power, uh, as one of my historical actors uh, said um, in uh, that chapter, he, he makes it very, very clear that uh, he, he basically argues that black folks may not have um, as the a powerful economic structure as did um, the Jews. Reverend Credit makes this point in an article and an op-ed that he sent to the Tribune. He says that we may not have the economic power as Jews, but we have the ballot, he said, and we need to use that ballot to basically ensure our protection and prosperity as well as those for black people all over the country. That is as true today as it was in 1912 when he submitted his thoughts to the Philadelphia Tribune. Uh, listen, before we, um, before we uh, go, uh, we've got a call here from New York City. Let's see if we got a question or comment for our guest. Let's go to 646-646. Let's put them back on hold. Let's go to Newport News. Newport News. Question or comment for our guests before we uh, wind it down? No. Dr. Harris, 
Uh, yes, thank, thanks for being with us. Looking forward to you returning. Uh, this whole situation, political situation, uh, dealing with our people is evolving. Um, with the issue of reparations moving to the forefront, you see more and more young people getting involved and in, in becoming aware of the political process. So I think you're going to see more of these conversations moving forward, especially after they start getting responses uh, from the power structure in reference to reparations. Uh, this, this is going to be interesting. Just like you, you know, <laughs> Richard, uh, Dr. Harris mentioned something similar to what uh, Dr. James Lance Taylor said about things being running in cycles. You remember what he mentioned, Richard? Yeah. So yeah. We, we see these things happening, and they're happening at a, they're happening at a rapid pace. So I think we're going to see some interesting things happening this year. And uh, the door is always open for you to come back anytime you want. I appreciate that, and and one of the reasons that I would assert that they that we see this is because, um, you know, what we're looking at the unresolved histories, right? What what I'm what we are essentially talking about, uh, my esteemed brothers, is the fact that um, history may be the study of the past, um, but in many ways. It's the study of how aspects of the past remain unresolved and reside in the present and ultimately inform the future, which is why the study of the history must be placed at a top priority because what is past is not nearly past at all. It is literally residing in the present in a different form and we need to have these type of focused conversations in order to see it and then begin to strategize around it. Yes. Yes. Have a good evening, sir. Talk to you soon. Yes. Yes, sir. Be well. You take care, sir. Bye-bye now. We'll be right back. Listening to Time for an Awakening. Time for an Awakening. With host Brother Elliot and Brother Richard on Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit them up at Time for an Awakening at gmail.com. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Dooley Brothers, specializing in shingle, rubber roofs, gutters, downspouts, and vinyl sidings. Call for your free estimate today, 215-224-3882. That's 215-224-3882. Dooley Brothers Roofing, the roofing experts you can trust. That number again, 215-224-3882. 215-224-3882. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. 
RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter, serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. Escape the digital plantation. Abibitumi.com, Abibitumi.tv, Abibitumi.tv.com, Abibitumi.store are here for you. You are ready to be free of non-African social media. Don't run from danger, run to safety. Abibitumi.com is here for you. You are ready to be free of digital plantations to control your own products. Abibitumi.store is here for you. A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I, Black Power, A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I. The only word you need to know to join your global Commit You Black family, to join your interconnected Commit You Black communities, escape the digital plantation now. Abibitumi.com, Abibitumi.tv, Abibitumi.tv.com, Abibitumi.store. We are here for you. Escape the digital plantation. Concerning your and my rights, that's the government. Don't say it, Southern Senators. This is the government. This is a government filibuster. It's not a segregationist filibuster. It's a government filibuster. Any kind of activity that takes place on the floor of the Congress or the Senate, that's the government. So this government has failed us. And government itself has failed us. And the white liberals who have been posing as our friends, have failed us. And once we see that all these other sources to which we've turned have failed, we stop turning to them and turn to ourselves. We need a self-help program, a do-it-yourself do philosophy, a do-it-right-now philosophy. Uh, it's already too late philosophy. This is what you and I need to get with. And the only time 
The only way we're going to uh, solve our problem is with a self-help program. Before we can get a self-help program started, we have to have a self-help philosophy. Black nationalism is a self-help philosophy. What's so good about it, you can stay right in the church where you are and still take black nationalism as your philosophy. And I think we are in a new era, a new phase of the struggle, where we have moved from a struggle for decency, which characterized our struggle for 10 or 12 years, to a struggle for genuine equality. And this is where we're getting the resistance because there was never any intention uh, to go this far. People were reacting to Bull Connor and to Jim Clark rather than acting in good faith for the realization of genuine equality. Do you think white people in this country, and I'm talking about non-segregation, as people devoid or thinking they're devoid of racism, do you have any idea of what they want the Negro to be in America? I think the vast majority of white Americans uh, will go but so far. It's a kind of installment plan for equality. And uh, they're always looking for an excuse uh, to go but so far. For an Awakening is a proud part of the Black Talk Radio Network, the number one independent black digital and podcasting platform. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. I want to thank a uh, guest that was with us this evening. Uh, Richard. Yes, yes. Interesting <clears throat> conversation. Um, <laughs> a lot of interesting comments that he made when, <laughs> uh, about the the situation, our political situation, and what we need to do. Um, when I raised to him his opinions on the conversation that we need to have as a people, he fully agreed. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, why? Based on the evidence. Uh, he also made a comment about the when he was at uh, the Free Library over there on 40th Street right. and the talk that he was having and the comment that the uh, the brother made in reference to what he was talking about. And that's some of the things that we mentioned, Richard. It's not that our people uh, uh, are ignorant. They don't have the proper information. And, you know, when you're talking about political education, Richard, the best people to help you with that is people that's involved. Uh, Richard, you tell me. Which one of these African-American politicians, black politicians here, conduct political education classes on a regular basis or even at all? Are you aware of any? Nope. Nope. That's, that's, why, <clears throat> that's why I was um, made the reference to the, the, the party process, because it seems to me if they were serious, they would in the districts that they won in. But they don't. And and that's um, that's that's what you know. It, it frustrates me so much, you know, because they, uh, you know, as you, as as you said and as he's saying, how are people supposed to know? And 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 it's a lot of questions about um, when when we were talking about independent, like when he's bringing up these independent moments when we created independent politics. 
it was because of the political education um, of the the constituency, if they call it now, the voters, but of black people, you know, of quote unquote working class people. It was there in order to know, like, this is how we have to maneuver this power perspective. Because, you know, Elliot, one thing he said earlier on that when he was talking about the, the progressivism and the two types, and he mentioned about the political, um, you know, the social progressive progressivism of Du Bois, but the political progressive, he said these guys were stealing or they were using the electoral party machine for their own economic development Mm -hmm. and create for the business development, for the debt development. I'm saying that this, you know, uh, as an, uh, you know, as an observer, um, for the amount of time, for the 50 years in developing, yes, we are getting patronage jobs, but I don't see them leveraging the political machinery to develop the business, the entrepreneurial and the business class. You know, we get, we get, ele- we get elected officials who go, who get caught taking $5 or a ring or a hundred dollars. What kind of, don't get me to cussing. What kind of stuff is that? Where these guys is taking, they're, you know, they're saying they, they're, I mean, they, they're, they're building up businesses from their using their political power, but by educating their constituency. Mm-hmm. That's that's. Hopefully, I made it clear as far as an example, you know. Yeah, well, listen, uh, we see we see what we have to do. It's clear what we have to do as a people. Uh, you know, when I gave that example of um, 20, 25 years after that emancipation, just before the turn of the, uh, uh, the 20th century, the progress that our people had made, and not necessarily the progress as far as being Americanized. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the progress of our people working together, reclaiming themselves as a people, uh, moving our people forward with dignity, helping one another. Sure, you had different strategies of black folks back then. Some had money. Some were doctors. Uh, uh, you, I mean, you had every, all of the things there, all the services you had among our community. But the community benefited from all of that, Richard. Right. I wanted to touch that when you raised about the culture, because you can, you know, track the, the separation of when they were working together to the point that you were making, even using the NAACP and what he, he outlines in the book, when they weren't working together as far as the black middle class. That's a cultural thing. That's, that's what I'm talking about. This is the conversation that's, that's going to have to be had. I don't care what, what whites going to do what they're going to do. And if you use a historical perspective, you can almost see what they're going to do. Just like mm-hmm. they study us and study our moves, study what we've been doing here, the progress, the so-called progress we made, or anything. You, you, uh, that historical society, when they were laying out, the two white professors, when they were laying out uh, how black people made moves, both politically and socially, during that early 20th century, somebody was looking at it, somebody was watching us. 
So, you know, these conversations we got to have among ourselves. Similar to to what they tried to take. Excuse me. I'm sorry. Go ahead. What's say that? These guys, these other guys have to come to the table, you know, um, so that because what they're doing is ignoring. Well, but that's the thing, Richard. If the, if these these sessions are called and they don't come to the table, then they reveal themselves to the community. It'll be revealed. And then the community knows what we have to do as a people. If you ignore it, then it's it's revealed. It will be revealed. So, so, I mean, that's all I'm saying. Similar to what what they tried to do in 72. You know, after that convention, they had several meetings. I think Tony Brown conducted some. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was was meetings where they called um, activists, uh, elected officials. It wasn't that many at that time, but it was some. And and people that were doing things in the community, movers and shakers, uh, average folk, called them to the table. And they voiced their opinion on what we needed to do or strategies that we needed to adopt. You, I mean, they, they put these, some of these things on YouTube, you can see. Mm-hmm. So do you see that these conversations have been going on? But you got people now that make a concerted effort for these conversations not to go on, both, right. both black and white. They don't right. want these conversations going on. Because they want the things to be business as usual. And we have to know how to handle the conversation, not just, you know, emoting or, or lambent, you know, because it's about acquisition of power. It's about what he ended with, with Dr. Harris. It's about, are we holding you accountable now? You know, you're going to give us some ungaga. That means you you don't know what you're there for. I see Sister Netta's um, on the line. Was this right here? Uh, 893. The call might have dropped. It's the seven. Oh, oh, wait a minute. Hold on. Let me me bring it. Hello. Can you hear me? I can. Can you all hear me? Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. Good evening, Brother Elliot, Brother Richard. Um, this is a great show. I really enjoyed um the podcast. This is I learned a lot about Philly. <laughs> and it wasn't because of the Eagles playing today, right? Mm. Um the the interesting thing is that um the my question this is a, a question that I do not I do not have the answer to, but it's my from what I do know I think that we as a people have not been afforded the opportunity to develop politically. Because when we think about when, um, as you all mentioned in the color conventions, when, you know, um, during and after reconstruction, what the Negro was asking for, we wanted to be left alone. We wanted to peace. We wanted what it was to be human in the land in which we call home, which we made a home, which we helped to build and make it is what it is. However, um, through the terrorism, through the anti-blackness, through the legislation, the black holes and everything, we were still fighting to be human. In addition to civil rights, we were fighting for human rights. So how does a group, an entire network of people, 
develop and mature politically when we still are fighting to be human on this land. And I think for several, since um, Reconstruction, we've made a lot of strides, a lot of progress, but I do not, I, I, do you all think that we've had the opportunity to step back to recognize the system in which we're asking and seeking human and civil rights? Did we have the opportunity to sit back and recognize who we are as the people viewing ourselves through our own lens and not through that same lens that wanted to keep us as the bottom caste and oppressed? And how is it that through all of that and us trying to succeed, how can we mature in ways when we're still fighting for our lives? Mm -hmm. So could were we afforded the opportunity to mature in the manner in which we should have been able to politically and even develop the ethnic pride that we needed to go along with that in order for us to be in a better place right now? You know, listen, I, I think, and Richard, let me say this and, and then I'll pass to my team. No, 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 no. I, I think that um, just like uh, Professor Harris mentioned that, you know, it's always a double cross in a lot of these laws that have been passed for our people. So when he mentioned that to give our people the right to vote and pick their elected officials, but don't give them political, uh, excuse me, economic power or the power to develop economically. You remember when he said that, Richard? Right, right. was, was right. basically a, a double cross, basically. Because in this capitalist system, you can't develop politically unless you have some type of economic base. Now, I think personally, just looking at history, that what our people did from, I'll just say, 1870 to right before the turn of that century kind of shocked white folks. They didn't think that our people would be able to do that, to work among themselves and to develop at such a, a, such a rapid pace. So instead of coming at them politically, because they had had they had political formations in those towns and counties where we were uh, where we predominantly dwelt. So instead of coming at them politically, which they couldn't really do that, they came at them. They physically attacked them. And, you know, and you notice the, the, the federal government themselves didn't say anything about it. It wasn't like they, uh, these counties or whatever that sent a militia against black folks did something against the law because they, they nobody ever did anything about it. So I think that that's me personally, Richard. I believe that what our people did kind of surprised Europeans. Well, definitely, definitely that, and and it's laid out. Um, the boys lays that out in Black Reconstruction. I mean, oh, okay, he, get, All right. he gives. He gives he gives that, you know, that the, the shock and surprise of that. But I think, you know, um, to what you say, Sister Netta, and, and what you're saying, Elliot, it's 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 a it's a, a both and a both in my mind right now. Because the attacks was to, you know, well, let me back up. Our humanness, we've already always believed that. That's why we could do that. I mean when, when, when Dr. Harris was raising about the political formations in Philadelphia, these guys, they recognized, these men and women already recognized that they were human. They already recognized that was bull, right? 
as leaders, they recognized that. And that's why they had to take away the vote from them because they were being effectively organizing, doing that political education in, in relationship to the party. One thought. So the point of our, our self-awareness, even with, as, and we're debating, we're debating and refuting whether we're using the religious text. And then when they go into, uh, a scientific social, I mean, the, uh, what's that? Uh, social Darwinism. We're debating that in relationship to are we human or where we fall at. So it's not that. It's the attacks on us, one. And then the selecting of individuals who they can, who will align with them. Yes. On the other side, because now people aren't. It's not because of our humanness. It's because the people are being terrified that they will lose their lives. And there is no protection, not efficient and effective protection in, in the protection of their lives as a group. And that then allows those who are a part of them who saying also, well, I don't want to be down with that. And these guys, because it's at one point, um, we see, and we just going through the book. Um, uh, what's that? Uh, something, a hammer and hammer and hoe, where the the clan member said, for a union organizer, when the white union organizer, that I want the black union organizer. What I'm what I'm trying to say is that the terrorism is to the point, and we don't even know now what these guys are saying to these guys for them not, as an example, to do no political education in their own district. We don't know if it's just because they're getting the money. We don't know if it's because they're getting a, a, a network of supporting through that patronage of families and friends, which we see. Or these guys is telling you, if you run your mouth, this is what's going to happen to you. Yeah, it's got to be something because it don't make any sense where none of these black elected officials, the only one I know of that ever that mentioned anything of that nature was Charles Byrne when he came on here, talking about the political education classes that he runs constantly in his district. You remember that, Richard? Right, right. I don't know if that addresses you, Sister Netta, but that's the way, you know, both of us, we see in response to what your your question you raised. No, so this this is very helpful, and I just want to clarify is that, I think um, definitely even before um, the Civil War and after and during Reconstruction, we showed who we are as people and their response. We had to keep responding to their response to us. They were shocked. They couldn't appreciate us as humans. They could not appreciate our black men as men and our women as women. They couldn't appreciate any of that. They actually, <laughs> they actually, um, if we if we go back, I'm glad you brought up Black Reconstruction. They actually thought that they were they were surprised that we were able to participate in the war. That and, and we've been you know resisting since since um uh, the trans since the, the slave trade began. But the, what I wanted to clarify is that we are constantly, when we are making progress in two to three areas, we have to take our resources and shift them because we're being attacked in others. So we get to, I'm, if I had to measure, and this is just an arbitrary number, it's not the true number, we may get to 72% in one area, but we have to pause there and go back because now we have to defend ourselves because we're being terrorized, attacked, 
in another. So have we been given so uh, so so that's what I say, like given and afforded the opportunity to mature in certain areas because we're constantly fighting. So where they get to shift, take a step back, plot, strategize in other ways to keep us bottom cast, we don't have the opportunity to stop. We're constantly on that miracle go round that you all mentioned because we're constantly going. So then it comes a point where we're just attempting to survive. We're just trying to get access to something, and we still don't know what that access, what we're asking for, because we haven't had the opportunity to take a step back and, and assess what actually has been going on and continues to happen. We, In addition to political education and us, there's also the historical education of who we are as a people and who those that are upholding the system that's keeping us bottom cast are. So where they, they, they afforded those opportunities. They get to kick their feet up all the time, think things through, plan, take their time, do anything. But I just don't feel that blacks in America have, or even globally have been able to take a step back and say, what's going on here? How do we plot to get around this? How do we empower ourselves to deal with this? And then stifle or, or, or even stunt, this whole power trip that they've been able to afford themselves to be on for several hundred years. I'm done. <laughs> I agree, sister. But uh, listen, the one thing that we're going to have to do, we're going to have to do it. I know it's difficult, but we're going to have to do it because they're not going to let up. <coughs> mm-hmm. Thank you, sister, for your participation. Don't let it be the last time. <laughs> Bridget. <laughs> Come to an end of a program, man, and uh, looking forward to, I'm, uh, well, I ain't going to mention the guests, but I'm looking forward to next month with our guests coming on. Right. <laughs> it'll be, be good to have him back. Um, and, and uh, you know, uh, I'm looking for a call, too, from uh, this week uh, from uh, to hear some progress on what has, gone, what has been going on with uh, Brother Miley up there in, in Colorado also. <laughs> It'd be kind of interesting to get a little report on uh, what's exactly happening on the ground. Before we go this evening, I uh, want to give uh, the lineup time for on Awakening Media Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. African perspectives with Brother Oshi. Always interesting topics and dialogue on African perspectives. That's Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, eleven a.m. to one p.m. on Tuesday, uh, eight to ten p.m. The return of the Black Reality Think Tank, which is scheduled for the first week. In March, the return of the Black Reality Think Tank with uh, with host a brother Alfonso Watkins uh, will be one of the hosts, and Sister Lotus will be the other host on Thursdays. Also, the return of the uh, Mississippi on the Move, Brother Patrick Lumumba, and the Black Liberation Movement in Mississippi. That's on Thursdays from seven to eight. On, on uh, Fridays, uh, Time for Awakening from 8 until, and on Saturdays from 7 to 9, the Elders of Sankofa with Dr. Janine James as host. I want to thank everybody for listening to the program this evening. Lively discussion as always, and we'll be back on Friday, Lord willing, to continue on this path towards an awakening. Peace. Peace. If you're driving through the country on a lazy afternoon 